Good evening. It is five o'clock on Sunday, the 27th of June. This is live at five. Um, good. Um, I'm Richard, one of the leaders at Kingfisher Church. Um, we're, let me pray. <laughs> let, let me pray and then we'll come and think about God's word and read it together. Um, let's pray. Every word of God is flawless. So God in heaven, as we have your flawless word before us, I pray, pray that you be merciful to us because we are flawed. Lord, we have many faults. Lord, we will not hear right. Our hearts will be resistant to your truth. Lord, by ourselves, Lord, we really have no hope that your word can do any good to us. And yet Lord, we have great hope because we're not by ourselves. And so we look to you, please, God in heaven, by your mercy and your might, would you quieten our hearts to listen to what you would speak to us in your flawless word. May your word achieve your great impeccable purposes for us. So help us now, I pray. Amen. Now this evening we're in Proverbs chapter 30. Um, and we're coming to the end of our series in Proverbs. This is the penultimate week, which is one more week after this. Um, and um, at the, the end of the book of Proverbs in chapter 30, we hear from this chap called Agur. And we've heard about him over the last couple of weeks. We've seen his testimony. We've seen his prayer. And then the rest of chapter 30 from verse 10 onwards, where we are this evening, we have his teaching, his testimony, his prayer, and today his teaching. And so let me read for us this passage. It'd be really helpful if you follow on um, in the Bible, um, particularly as we look through this, so you can see that, that what is being said is coming from the flawless word of God. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 10. Do not slander a servant to their master, or they'll curse you and you'll pay for it. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their foot. Those whose eyes are ever so haughty, whose glances are so disdainful. Those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among the human race. The leech has two daughters. Give, give, they cry. There are three things that are never satisfied, four that never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, land which is never satisfied with water, and fire which never says enough. The eye that mocks a father, that scorns an aged mother, will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley, will be eaten by the vultures. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A servant who becomes king, a godless fool who gets plenty to eat, a contemptible woman who gets married, and a servant who displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Hyraxes are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. A lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. There are three things that are stately in their stride, four that move with stately bearing. A lion, mighty among beasts, who retreats before nothing, a strutting cock, a he-goat, and a king secure against revolt. 
if you play the fool and exalt yourself, or if you plan evil, clap your hand over your mouth. For as churning cream produces butter and as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. Verse 10 is where the teaching begins. An instruction. Do not slander a servant to their master. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Uh, this slander is something that is wrong. Uh, it means to, to spread a lie. It means to, to kind of um, bake up a half-truth until it hardens into a whole truth and then spread it about maliciously. But what Agatha, he focuses on an, on an instant in verse 10 where somebody slanders a servant to their master. What he's doing is picking up on an instant where the where the victim of the slander cannot stand up for themselves. It's a defenseless victim. And we could call this, um, we could call it gossip. We could call it all kinds of things, but it stinks. It's done behind someone's back. It is putting the gossip in the position of power. It's destroying the reputation of the victim. And it really is quite easy to do. It doesn't take very much just to shift the attention onto something that is negative in someone else and to speak in a way that's putting down the other person the person who's not the head to defend themselves the person who's not in the conversation but to put them down and it's delicious isn't it isn't it now we probably don't want to admit that but it can make us just feel so much better about ourselves to talk about the faults and the failings of others uh, to embellish perhaps the faults and the failings of others, to highlight the faults and the failings of others. It can make us feel so much better about ourselves. And I think what Agar's doing here is he's picking up on this, this ugly moment because it is it is just so common. And I think he's, he's, he's touching on something in verse 10 that, that is easily related to, and it almost catches us off guard. In fact, the, the kind of prohibition in verse 10 isn't quite as direct as our translation gives it. It's more like, you shouldn't do this. And of course, we know we shouldn't do that, but we, but we do quite easily. We do. And, and then what? So what? What Aga does in, in this bit is he takes this ugly moment and then he uses it as a window to the whole world. He begins to ask, what is it that precipitates that ugly moment? Now, when we, we slag someone off, when we gossip, when we slander, however sophisticated we want to speak about it, and when we let our speech about others drag them down, it can happen in just a moment. And, and it can be kind of over as soon as it started. But Agus says, get that moment. Where does it come from? So we can be perhaps too kind to ourselves. And we know we mess up we know we do wrong but you know, we know we're not always kind of super kind especially with the way we speak but we can quite easily dismiss it and, and Agatha said no don't dismiss it he wants us to stop and to think what breeds those ugly moments in our lives uh, the answer that Aga gives begins by tracing the roots of the ugly moment back into a pride infested world and then he, he turns the ugly moment into an aching for the beauty of a saviour. Let's see how he does that. First of all, tracing the roots of the ugly moment into a pride-infested world, verses 11 to 23. Now, if you look with me at these verses, they're quite structured. 
verses 11 to 14, they, they all begin with the same word, a generation, or the NIV translates it, there are those, those who, it's a generation, a generation, a generation, it's verses that are describing the characteristics of a group of people. And that the ugly moment arises from this world that Agar describes. Uh, then verses 15 to 17 contains what is called a numerical saying. Um, there are three and there are four kind of saying. Here are a couple of things. And usually the last thing in the list is where the focus is. And this first list, verses 15 to 17, is about greed. Uh, then in verse 18 to 20, we get a second numerical saying. And this one is about wonder, amazing things. And then in verses 21 to 23, we get a third numerical saying, and it's all about things that confound creation. Now, across these verses, 11 to 23, there are a number of kind of connecting ideas and, and words. Um, so it's a verse 11 and verse 17 are all about ignoring parental instruction. A verse 12 and then verse 13 and verse 17 all speak about the eyes. A verse 12 and then verse 20 about doing what is right in your own eyes verse 14 i think pulls us back to that anchor in verse 10 where, where verse 14 gives a kind of more intense description of using words to harm the vulnerable so what do we make of it what do we draw from it where does the ugly moment of verse 10 come from well these these verses before us are describing a self-exalting generation but that's what breeds the ugly moment. What, what is such a generation like? Three things. First of all, they will not be taught. See verse 13, those whose eyes are ever so haughty, whose glances are so disdainful. You know, the eye reveals the frame of mind. And this is a generation that, that looks over everyone else, so down on others, that the working presupposition is that they they have it, they are sorted, they are better than others. And how does it show itself? Well, verse 11, those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. And the book of Proverbs has given us this whole kind of scheme, approach to education with these parents who are teaching their son. They're, these parents preparing their son for life in the world. They're setting before him the challenges of life, warning him of the dangers and the in it impressing on him the surpassing value of wisdom. He must go into life, he must go through life in the fear of the Lord. And yet there are those who think they know better. They will not be taught. Verse 17, the eye that mocks a father that scorns an aged mother. Or the English Standard Version says, scorns to obey a mother. That's the issue, obedience. Now this generation thinks so much of themselves, they will not be taught. Probably not thinking about us, is it? Now, Aga, Aga gently challenges that anyone who thinks this generation is not their generation, who, anybody who thinks this is not the world in which they swim. Now, look at his third numerical saying, verses 21 to 23. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A servant who becomes king a godless fool who gets plenty to eat, a contemptible woman who gets married, and a servant who displaces her mistress. Things that make the earth tremble. What are they? Well, these are these, these four things describe a kind of undeserved grasping for power and position. And the servant who becomes king, the word for servant is a 
a kind of quite high official. It's, it's somebody who's in that court who manipulates their way to power. As a servant who displaces her mistress. How does a servant displace her mistress? Well, by becoming the wife of the master. And these are instances that really echo very loudly from Eden. Uh, back in Eden, where Adam and Eve grasped for unwarranted dominion. And right from that point on, that grasping for power at the expense of others, it is written into our human DNA. And that's precisely what causes the ugly moment of verse 10. We humans, by our fallen nature, we are bent towards lifting up ourselves at the expense of others. And we can do it with a word and we can we can do it with a look, with an attitude with a, a manipulation of advantages, with a kind of putting ourselves into, into position, stepping over those around us to get what we think we need, what we think we deserve, what is ours by rights, and overlooking the needs of those around us, the situation of those around us, when we put our concerns at the top of the list and when we think it's all about us. Fiat trembles at it, like it did with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve turned their backs on God, this creation has been groaning ever since. This is our world. Now, this generation will not be taught because they think they already know. They won't look for education from outside because they govern themselves according to their inner voice. And my friends, when we are left to ourselves, we are such a generation. Our pride shows itself in our attitude to learning. It also shows itself in greed. It's our second thing about this generation. They will not be satisfied. Come to verse 15. The leech has two daughters. Give, give, they cry. Now the leech is a, is a greedy little rascal. A sucking and sucking. And the, the two daughters may well be the two mouths of the leech, one to attach to the prey, the other to suck it dry. Give, 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 give. And then three things are never satisfied for, never say enough. Things with insatiable appetites. The list contains four great consumers. We have the grave yearning constantly to swallow in death. The barren womb yearning constantly to produce life. The land yearning for water to produce life. The fire yearning to destroy that life. And then Agur brings this never being satisfied. He brings it back to the matter of pride and refusing parental instruction. Verse 17. Now pride and greed are closely related. You see what, what pride says is pride says I'm going to look to myself. I'm going to look to my inner resources in order to build my life and it's going to be done on my terms and the thing about it is that it's just so unstable two, two reasons really why pride is unstable the first one is that self-definition is never certain now how can i be sure that i'm striving for what i need now how can i know that what i set for myself is sufficient as you see the self-defined person sets the exam sets the exam and then is left with this nagging little voice that maybe it's not enough and the voice gets louder i need more i need more give 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 it is unstable second reason that pride is unstable is just objectively it is unstable the self-provision will never provide it cannot provide what is needed there's always going to be emptiness left over 
And because there is only one, like one of the commentators says, there is only one who answers every demand, supplies every need, satisfies every desire. There's only one. And without him, without depending on him, which the proud cannot do, by definition, they cannot depend on. But without that, we're left humbled. God made us for himself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in And don't we see this in the world around us? And then we see people greedy for more, 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 give, give. Relationships, work, more work, stuff, and then more stuff, and new cars, and holidays, and new homes, and home improvements, and pets, and new pets, and entertainment, and more entertainment. And the message that cries out again and again is, it is never enough. And when Bob Geldof wrote his autobiography, he called it, is that it? Because he got to the top and it wasn't enough. But left to ourselves, my friends, left to ourselves, we are such a generation. Every ugly moment of verse 10 grows out of a pride-infested world. They will not be taught. They will not be satisfied. And thirdly, they will not be wrong. They will not be wrong. And verse 12 speaks about those who are pure in their own eyes, their own eyes. That they decide the standard of what is right and wrong, what is pure, what is not pure, and always put themselves on the best side. And people will often admit in a general way they're not perfect, but when it comes to specifics, bring out the excuses. We don't like to think we're as bad as we are. And, and Agar really just steps back, I think, and he, he marvels at how blind we can be to us. In his second numerical saying, verses 18 to 20, he marvels at the natural world. He says, there are things in the world that boggle his mind. He can't understand them. An eagle in the sky, effortlessly soaring. It's a wonderful thing to see. A snake on a rock. It's able to glide so easily. There's, there's nothing to hold on to and nothing to hold with. It's mesmerizing. A ship on the high seas terrifying and majestic as it rises and falls and navigates over the waves. A man with a young woman, all the mysteries of romance, attraction, physical love, it's a marvel. And, and, and Aga marvels at these things and then he catches us off guard. Because as we pause to reflect on these wonders, he adds another in verse 20. The way of an adulterous woman. She eats wipes her mouth and says, done nothing wrong. Agar marvels at it, how easily sin can be excused and trivialized. In this case, this adultery is an act that attacks the very foundation of society. It causes shockwaves of relational destruction in all kinds of directions. And, this, and it's seen as, as having a little snack. It's no big deal. So why is it no big deal? Because wrong is self-defined. They will not be wrong. They're pure in their own eyes and it's false purity. Back in Proverbs 16, verse 2, it said, all a person's ways seem pure. All of our ways can seem pure to us. And then it says, motives are weighed by the Lord. If we set the standard, then we're going to be very quick to make sure that our standards match our behavior. But we don't set the standard. The Lord weighs the motives. It's his purity that sets what is pure and what is not. Now, verse 10, I think, is pointing us this way. If we come back to verse 10. 
do not slander a servant to their master or they will curse you and you'll pay for it. See, in, in this little kind of image here, this little word picture, that this servant hasn't got power to stand against the lies, but they can call on the Lord for justice. And that's what it means to curse you. It's to ask the judge of all the world to do what is right. And if you're wrong, justice will meet you with punishment. You will pay for it. See, the Lord sets the standard. It's not the flimsy feelings of our hearts. And so verse 12, those who are pure in their own eyes are not cleansed of their filth, cannot be cleansed because wrong must be punished. Creation groans for such justice, such divine justice. Verse 17 puts it quite graphically when it speaks about this eye, the proud eye, that eye that looks down on everyone else. This eye that refuses God, that sets its own terms, it treads down others. That eye, verse 17, will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Do you see what, what Aga has done here? Picked up on this moment, this ugly moment, this slander. Perhaps a familiar moment, I think. And, uh, and then he asks, where does it come from? Don't, don't don't push it away, but bring it into the light and examine it. And he traces that ugly moment into a pride infested world, a world where people won't be taught, where people won't be satisfied, where people won't be wrong. A godless world, but God's world, nevertheless. And so the eyes of faith see that justice will come, that the filth of this world cannot be cleansed because it must be punished. It's a it's a pretty sobering exercise that Agar takes us. And, and yet it's, it's, a, it's an exercise that follows Agar's testimony and his prayer. You see, Agar's testimony begins with this confession that he can't work out life for himself. And, and then it ends with his need to receive God's perspective on everything that's found in the Bible. So he sets himself to submit to what God says. He prays that he won't be led away from God's perspective. He seeks for God to get glory in all his life. I think that's why he wants to see where ugly moments in life come from. He wants to understand better his sin so that he might better grasp his need for the Lord. And, uh, and with that, Agar is making us stop and think. We ought to stop and think. What is it that breeds the ugly moments in our lives? Don't, don't, don't just push them away. Don't just dismiss them as a simple mishap. Bring it into the light. Where does it come from? Uh, the, the answer that Agar gives to the question of where those ugly moments come from is he begins by tracing the roots into the pride infested world. And then secondly, he turns the moment into an aching for the beauty of a saviour. And that's what we come to now, the aching for the beauty of a saviour, verses 24 to 33. So look at verse 24. Four things. This is a numerical saying, but it's not a three, then four. It's just four. Why is that? Why is it different? Who knows why it's different? Uh, and yet, because it's different, it does stand out. And, and I think it marks a change. I think, I think this list of four now has the capacity to infuse the pride infestation with hope. But, but first of all, let's come to the final numerical saying, verses 29 to thirty. Now, Agar again gets his illustrations from the creation. And now he looks at the mighty among the beasts, the lion, the strutting cockerel, the billy goat, a king, 
these are images of power and control. Uh, Naga says, look at them, think about these images of power and control. And then verse 32, don't dare to think you can lift yourself up. Verse 32, if you play the fool and exalt yourself, bringing us back to this pride infestation, this self-exaltation. So if you find anything in you that is trying to exalt yourself, or if you plan any evil, the two are closely related. Uh, what, what should you do? If you find any of this in yourself, what should you do? Well, well Agar is the master counsellor. He says, stop it. See, clap your hand over your mouth. Self-exaltation, planning of evil. If, if the idea of anything contrary to God's ways comes to mind, don't let it sit even for a moment. Clap your hand over your mouth. For as churning cream produces butter and as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. And if these things are not shut down, they will bring trouble. Stop it. I think, though, what Agar does is he points us towards the response of Job. Job and when, when Job's anguish and his wrestling is finally answered by the glory of Almighty God and, and Almighty God confronts him and Job is overcome with the awesome majesty and the preeminent magnificence of the creator and, and, and he, he meets with God and God, God bombards him with these questions about his greatness and his, his brilliance and his excellence and his sovereignty and his power. And in Job 40, Job says, I am unworthy. How can I reply? I put my hand over my mouth. There is an awesome silence warranted by the revelation of God's glory. A soul that's rightly postured before that majesty. That was a soul that will stop its excuses, stop its self-justification. Just stop. Hagar's message is really clear, isn't it? Don't exalt yourself. You can't succeed in lifting up yourself. This is that the fool in Proverbs, we've met the fool so often. The fool does not think he needs to trust the Lord because he thinks he can make it by himself. He doesn't think he needs a God to rule over him. I said, don't be a fool. Don't exalt yourself. But then what? But we'll come with me to the four things in verses 24 to 25. Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. And here hope is kindled. Uh, Aga guides us to learn lessons from the little things. Wisdom in the small places. He points out the, the ants and the hyraxes and the locusts and the lizard. Little creatures. They're not the stately lion, not the strutting cockle, but he's a vulnerable creature. But it's in their smallness that wisdom blossoms. And again, we've got to remember how Agar writes us on the back of his testimony. We, we can't lose sight that as we, we follow his guide, the wisdom that Agar speaks of, this extreme wisdom that is seen in the little things, this is the wisdom he advocates, the fear of the Lord. The, the wisdom he's, he's aiming at is the life that goes under, the life that is postured in complete dependence on the Lord, trusting him with everything. That's wisdom. That's the wisdom that that rises in the small. You see, these little things that Agar tells us about, these are the have-nots. Each of these four sayings here are constructed in, in two parts, and the first part highlights what they lack. It's showing how wisdom aids the have-nots. And, and really, Agar's teaching is, 
Let's put all of us into the place of the haves. As we belong to a corrupt generation, as we are affected by our fallen natures, as we are prone to self-exalting pride, we haven't got purity that can stand the scrutiny of God's judgment. We are the haves. I mean, this little section in some ways is like the Beatitudes. They're the Beatitudes that Jesus taught in Matthew 5, blessed are the haves. Are those who admit that they are the have-nots, those who bring their emptiness to the one who is the fullness. And what, what do we learn from what Agar teaches us? Well, he speaks about the ants, the have-nots, creatures of little strength. The, the ants represent weakness. They haven't got strength. But he says they store their food in the summer. So it's saying how the, the ant builds up a, a store of nourishment that will be ready for times of need. And we just let this little lesson, this little observation brew in the tides of salvation history where does the scripture direct the have-nots to go to, to what are the have-nots to do in times of need well hebrews chapter 4 says that we are we have access to the treasures of grace loaded in the lord jesus so in times of need we go to the throne of grace you see, we, we live in a generation that shapes our instincts to look for help inside ourselves. We look for it within. You can do it. But the ant teaches us the way of wisdom. We abandon hope in ourselves. We haven't got the strength to cope. But we can go to and draw from the supplies of grace in Christ. So in times of need, we don't need to go to ourselves. No, our own stores will fail us. But we go to Christ and his stores of help will never fail. The hyraxes, they are creatures of little power. They're, they're, they're few in number. They're vulnerable to predators. The hyrax is, is picturing vulnerability. But it says they make their home in the crags. That's where they find their security. So again, we let this lesson brew in the tides of redemption history. And what does the scripture say to the have-nots who are vulnerable? To the have-nots who are vulnerable to attack, vulnerable to temptation, vulnerable to destruction. Well, Colossians chapter 3 says, your life is hidden in Christ. See, we, we live in a generation that teaches us about man-made identities. Where the hierarchs teaches us the vulnerability of such nonsense. We don't build our own homes within ourselves. We build our home on the crag, on the rock that is Christ. We're not going to find safety in a kind of self-constructed refuge. We're not a sure foundation in ourselves. But our God, he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So we can have bold confidence in the face of every threat because our lives stand on the rock. We build our lives on Christ. Well, the locusts, they have no king. They have no king, but they unite to advance like an army. And we do have a king, don't we? We have a king called Jesus. We heard about him this morning. Our king, Jesus, who gave everything for us. And he leads us now on his mission in the world to how much more, how much more than the locust do we need to unite with our fellow believers and advance in the mission of our Savior. And the lizard, tiny, insignificant, he can get caught in the hand, it's nothing. Yet it is found in king's palaces. The nothing thing is found in the king's palaces. That's wisdom's reward. Wisdom's reward is not by might, not by power. Not by deserving, but this little lizard has the free run of the luxurious royal residence. There's no place that's shut off to him. He's found in everywhere. 
And so haven't we, though? Haven't we who come in broken humility and repentance? Aren't we those who have been raised in Christ? And even now, as Ephesians 2 says, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Now, our world is messed up. That's what ugly moments about. Our world is messed up, but our world is not lost. And it's in the small things that hope shines. But we, we cannot exalt ourselves. Verse 32 is clear. We cannot exalt ourselves. We need someone else to do that. Haggard traces the ugly moments into the pride-infested world, into this world where people won't be taught, they won't be satisfied, they won't be wrong. It's a, a godless world, but it's God's world nevertheless. So the eyes of faith see that justice will come. That the, the, the filth of this world cannot be cleansed because it must be punished. But we listen. We listen to Isaiah chapter 1 where our God says, come now. Let, let's settle the matter. Reason with me. Though your sins are like scarlet, though your, though, though your filth cannot be cleansed, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Our filth clings to us by nature and it must be and that, that's why we we cannot raise ourselves up but what if there was one what, what what if there was there was one who was pure and spotless what if he were to stand in our place now what if the punishment our sin deserved would be taken from us and put upon another what if there could be a stream opened up that could clean away our filth our friends we have such a savior and his name is jesus and we don't need to bear our sin and our shame because he will do that and we don't need to go about in filthy rags because he will clothe us in his own righteousness so we don't need to pretend that we're okay we don't need to give the impression that we're sorted we can stop being pure in our own eyes and we cannot exalt us we cannot do this. We must not exalt ourselves. But in Christ, the one who is exalted far above all things in Christ, we are lifted up. So will you humble yourself again before the Lord Jesus? That he will lift you. So will you go to him for help in time? Will you build your life on him? Will you unite with his people? Will you wait for the blessed hope of his appearing and his welcome into your eternal that agar's right he's right in verse 32 if you play the fool that is if you neglect the fear of the lord and refuse to trust the lord and if you plan evil if you find any of that in your hearts any self-exalt stop it and go quickly to jesus let's pray Oh God in heaven, please, please, oh Lord, would you be merciful to us? Please help us not to exalt ourselves, not to be foolish, not to live as though we know the answers, not to live as though we uh, can set for ourselves what is right and wrong. But may we live each moment in complete dependence on our Lord Jesus. May we be quick to go to him, quick to learn from him, quick to take from him. May we find our hope and our security in our Lord Jesus. Amen. Good evening. Thanks for joining me. Mother Ritz.
Sunday evening or another point in the week. And may the Lord bless you. And one more week in Proverbs next Sunday. Good evening.